Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, March the 28th, 2022. And judging from the headlines, the health of American democracy doesn't seem particularly good. Uh, the January 6th panel is seeking an interview with Ginny Thomas, the wife of a Supreme Court justice. Meanwhile, uh, a judge has said that um, not just Ginny Thomas, but Trump himself is more likely than not to have committed a crime in his January 6th efforts to turn upside down the uh the 20 uh, the 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 20 uh, 20 election um for for regular viewers of course of this show it's not particularly surprising we've had so many shows on the crisis of american democracy we had jonathan carl for example on the show talking about his most recent book betrayal the final act of the trump show which was essentially a betrayal of American democracy, goes beyond Trump, goes to the entire Republican Party in some ways. Uh, last month, we had two Republicans, one from Pennsylvania, one from Georgia on the show, talking about how many Republicans have turned against democracy. And the crisis perhaps isn't just in the Republican Party. It extends to the Democratic Party, too. We had the Washington, D.C., uh, Brookings Institute writer William Galston on the show talking about a similar kind of crisis in some ways within Joe Biden's Democratic Party. Um, Galston is the author of an interesting new book, Anti-Pluralism, the Populist Threat to Liberal Democracy, which isn't just on the right, but also on the left. Um, even the radical historian Michael Kazin was on the show recently talking about whether or not the, the, the Democratic Party has a future. His new book, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party, looks back rather nostalgically, wistfully to the history of the Democratic Party in terms of restoring, recovering democracy. And the theme of a crisis in American democracy is extended in our show today with uh, the Minnesota-based historian and political analyst, Lawrence R. Jacobs, who has a new book out, Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American um, History. Uh, Larry is joining us from St. Paul, Minnesota. Larry, how did Donald Trump break American history? What exactly does that even mean? How can history be broken? There's a long tradition uh, going back really to uh, the Constitutional Convention in 1780s that has focused on how to balance political equality and order. And it has created a representative democracy that's rooted in the Constitution and some rules and procedures. Um, this has seen, for instance, the peaceful transfer of power uh, since the 1800 election when John Adams was defeated left office in a carriage early, early in the morning and uh, didn't, you know, try to rally uh, folks against the outcome of the election. And it's continued up to this time. Now we have got a president who um, 
an ex-president. Yeah, uh, we came, had a president. We don't. We, have we had a president um, who uh, came into office, um, and even during the debates, was talking about maybe he wouldn't abide by the outcome. Um, and you had, you know, mostly a united front of prominent Republicans in 2016 saying they would not vote for Donald Trump. Uh, they considered him an embarrassment um, and that he was unfit for office. And yet they could do nothing about that. So it is the snapping of this tradition we've had in America for orderly, uh, organized uh, procedures and rules um, that's based on a constitution. That has now been snapped. And I think a lot of the fear and trepidation about the future of American democracy comes from a sense of what are the guardrails? How is this going to work? Will elections be challenged? Will we have folks running elections, uh, such as Secretary of State's, who will be devoted to um, to their party um, and their candidates rather than the rule of law? Larry, as I said, your new book, Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History is just out. What do you say? There have been so many books about Trump and his impact on democracy and the crisis that he has created in American democracy. What are you saying in in your new book, Democracy Under Fire, that hasn't been said before? What's original about this book? Well, there's been a lot written, and I, I think a lot of it has been fantastic, including the January 6th um, uh, commission, uh, committee uh, in Congress, which I think has exceeded, uh, certainly exceeded my expectations about what they would find. But a lot of that is focused on the particulars of Donald Trump and 2020, um, and that's important. I take a different approach. I look at what has happened, of course, across our history that has put us at a point where democracy is so vulnerable that a demagogue like Donald Trump, who is opposed by his own party's leaders, could get into office. And once in office, is committing impeachable offenses, and yet his party is voting against those, um, those impeachable offenses, even though they readily acknowledge in many cases that he did that. Um, and then you've got an election that was certified in states. Um, it was reviewed by over 90 judges, including a number who were appointed by Donald Trump and Republicans, who certified and agreed with the outcome. And then you get to Congress and you've got you know, a huge number of Republicans who are trying to invalidate the 2020 election. How have we gotten to that point? And the answer, in my view, we've got to look at history. We've got to look at this, this uh, pattern that's been emerging over a number of decades. Because if we want to reverse what's happened, we have to understand that history and the dire point that we are at now. So I take that point. You suggest that we have to focus historically on the crisis of American democracy. It can't all be focused on Trump course, a narcissist who tends to personalize everything. You want to look at the architecture, the overall structure of American democracy over the last century or two. What, what are the most important things to look at? Why should we be so concerned? We can go into some of the really interesting uh, chapters, episodes that brought us to this. But, you know, I think the main kind of result of this um, torturous path that we've been on in creating really in a lot of ways a unique form of, of um, democracy in America has been the carving out of political parties as representative institutions. Um, 
It is not the case in any other country. Let me put that more positively. There is no other country in which power over nomination has been ceded to a group of party activists. You don't find that in England or Germany or all over Europe or Canada. Um, the very idea in America that party leaders would have a, a strong hand in who's nominated um, is considered undemocratic in America and democratic in other countries with the fight being between the parties and not in it. And so the result of the reforms that have been made, I think uh, foolishly over the last century has been to hand power to a relatively small number of party activists and donors and interest groups, and they have pursued their own agendas. Um, and the party leaders, as you saw Trump in 2016, are really powerless. Um, now, how do we get to that point? How do we get to the point where we have this bizarre fixation with the internal mechanisms of our political party and, and have this, I think, deformed idea of democracy is equal to direct primaries in which a small number of ideologically extreme uh, Americans are mostly calling the shots. To me, one of the most interesting... But, but, but let me push back, Larry. Is this true in both parties or is it just in the Republican Party? Because it seems to me that uh, perhaps your observations are right about Trump, but when it comes to the Democrats, their nomination of Joe Biden reflected the the wisdom of the party elders in terms of electing someone who was moderate and electable. So, so why is it working in one party and not in the other? Good question. Um, the parties are different. Um, the Republican Party is controlled much more than the Democratic Party by a uh, almost a singular uh, ideological orientation. Um, it used to be conservative and it's gravitated to the radical right um, that is denying um, even you know certified elections. It's an incredible uh, evolution. But this is not just a tiny group of lunatics. I mean, this this extends quite broadly. It certainly extends in the media to Fox News to millions of people who would agree with Donald Trump. So there's nothing necessarily unrepresentative about this. Well, you know, if you look at how many people turn out for presidential primaries, which is the big deal, it varies between a quarter um, and a third of uh, the party, um, registered party members. Um, and then you look at who's actually being uh, participating. It's not a cross-section of America by any means. They are more liberal in the Democratic Party and far more conservative in the Republican Party than rank and file party members and certainly most Americans. These are not representative people. It's very small. Let me give you another example. Um, Tea Party, which shook things up. Um, you know, the turnout in that 2010 uh, set of primaries was between 12 and 15 percent. Now, think of the impact that the Tea Party had uh, once it was in office. It's still reverberating. And the point is, there's two sides to this. One is that the the primary is allowing these ideologues, uh, especially in the Republican Party, uh, to select the nominees. And then you get to the general election. And because of the partisan polarization, we're seeing, you know, probably about 80 to 90 percent of folks who affiliate with one party or another following uh, the party leaders. Um, and that is why we're getting these situations 
in Congress um, where the, the, the members who know better and say privately they despise Donald Trump, they know the elections are, are legitimate, are not following. Why? Because they're looking at those primary um, ideologues. How, um, how responsible also is the gerrymandered system in the American on the American political landscape. It seems to be a very important piece of this. The, the, the electoral map has been carved up in such a way as uh, this echo chamber nature of politics is reflected in, in, in the voting system itself. Yeah, that's certainly true. And I, you know, I, I certainly don't say primaries are everything, but it's created an incentive system and a structure so that you do have redistricting that is being controlled by the parties right now. Um, you probably only, you know, the, the House representatives 435 members, there may be 10% or so who are even competitive anymore. So what that means is that the elections in the primary is the election. And it's being controlled for the most part by the activists who are the most extreme, especially in the Republican party. So, you know, this idea of representation is really taken a hit in America. And, I think most concern to me is we're seeing people being nominated who don't abide by the Constitution. We've got a group of people who are, who are in the process of being nominated by the Republican Party for secretary of state who have a commitment to undermining the rules and laws of fair elections um, that have been conducted in this country for, for decades. Larry, do we live in a democracy still? I mean, how, how fearful should we be? of the survival of American democracy unless this thing gets fixed or addressed? I think it's it's very serious. And I, I know folks have a lot of different agendas on what can be done. Um, but I would say, look at the rules and procedures. Yeah, I want to get to the what can be done. Actually, we're going to take a break now. But I, um, I, I want to focus in the second part of the show on, on, on fixing this thing. But in terms of the seriousness of the crisis, you're a historian, a political historian of American democracy. Is this uh, situation in, in, in March 2022, is it a serious a condition of American democracy as it's ever been in, including the Civil War? It'd be in the top five. I mean, I think it's Civil War was extraordinary. Well, what are the other four? Well, you know, I think if you go back and you look at the rise of fascism, uh, the 1930s, um, that was quite alarming. Um, you know, I think there were episodes where there were crackdowns, like the Palmer. That was marginal, wasn't it? The rise of fascism. It didn't exist. Or it didn't, certainly didn't dominate a political party as it might do now. Uh, we could we could get into de- depth on those things, but I would say those are you know episodes. Um, but yeah, I would say this is you know, I mean, the problem right now again is we have a pathway. Uh, that is unobstructed for those who get nominated and abide by you know, radical concepts to demolish our constitution, who will now be on the ballot. They have been on the ballot with Donald Trump. The Democratic Party was George Wallace, who I think first showed how the primaries could be used to bypass the party leaders and kind of what I would say is a peer review system. We are talking with Lawrence R. Jacobs, who I'm calling Larry, but Officially, Lawrence R. Jacobs, the author of Democracy Under Fire, a distinguished American political scientist based in Minnesota. It's cold there, but he likes the political climate, I think, more than some other parts of the country. 
Uh, we've been talking about what Larry sees as a, a profound uh, structural crisis of American democracy, uh, which he lays out in his new book, Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History. But he focuses in this book not just on Trump and on the particularities of, of, of Trump's cultural politics, but more on this crisis of the political parties um, and the way in which small minorities have taken over both parties, particularly the Republicans, but also to some extent the Democrats. Uh, after the break, Larry, I want to come back and I want to talk about how we're going to fix this. It seems to me as if I'm not sure whether the problem are too many elites or not enough elites, whether we need more or less democracy in the parties. But uh, perhaps we'll we'll talk about that after the break. So stay with us, everyone. We'll be back in 60 seconds with Larry Jacobs, the author of Democracy Under Fire. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Larry Jacobs, the author of Democracy Under Fire, an important new book about the crisis, the political crisis within the parties of democracy in America. Larry, uh, before the break, you laid out the crisis saying that essentially the crazes are taken over the asylum, that small minorities of people, political extremes within the parties, particularly the Republicans, have seized control of the party in terms of the nominating process. Are you suggesting then that we need to go back to a more traditional system where conventional elites controlled the parties? Or do we need to broaden the democratic foundations of these parties? Or perhaps like we can do both simultaneously. Yeah, I, I would agree with the both simultaneously. I think, um, and and they're linked. Um, you know, so for instance, America has um, about five hundred thousand elections um, each year for local, municipal, state, federal offices. Five hundred thousand. 
in a country like Germany or you know elsewhere in Europe, you'd see six to eight over a number of years. And the idea was we're going to vote for everything because that's democracy. Well, that's well, that's at least the Tocquevillian notion of democracy in America, right? Yeah, and it was a progressive era notion as well. Um, but the result is voters are just not turning out. You know, here you have these important uh, primaries, and even when it's in a presidential election year, you get you know maybe a quarter, a third of the party uh, turning out. So I think one thing we need to do is just take a very hard look at the number of elections. We need to reduce that and kind of uh, make it more feasible for voters and citizens to become knowledgeable, to become engaged, um, and have the energy to participate in our electoral democracy. Uh, and we've got to break from this idea that having an election equals democracy. I'd say it's the opposite now. We are just uh, deferring a lot of these offices that are apparently up for election to um, the ideological extreme. So I, that's one careful thing. I think we also need to look at ways to um, kind of recalibrate the political parties. I don't think we're going back to, you know, kind of a 19th century political party. I wouldn't recommend that. And for sure, it's not going to happen. But I think, you know, debates over such thing as the superdelegates in the Democratic Party or what's called the unpledged delegates in the um, Republican Party, these are folks who have been in office or in office or are leaders of the parties, and they have an incentive for the party to win the general election. In other words, to appeal to the majority of the country. And that's a pretty helpful thing. I think of that as peer review. Um, and if that had happened in 2016, Donald Trump would never have been nominated, even with a you know, larger percent of unpledged delegates in the Republican Party, it would have been more of a fight and there would have been an opportunity for uh, Republicans to head off what they knew was gonna be a disaster. Um, so I think restraining elites, absolutely essential. Um, you know, for a long time, we've, if, if you kind of read the uh, commentariat, it was always about voters being uninformed and not caring. Yeah, that may be true in some cases, but it's often often because of the institutions and the absurd demands made on voters. The problem are elites. We, the country is being destroyed by uh, the folks who run government, uh, run businesses, who really don't care that much about the country. They care more about you know their small part of their business or their political uh, uh, set of groupies. So, so basically, you're also talking here. You've you've slipped that in, Larry, at the end about taking big money out of politics. Is this another piece of of fixing this puzzle that the money, corporations, wealthy people have figured out ways that they can control the political system? Uh, but on the other hand, none of them really wanted Trump, did they? Many of them are very ambivalent about these. Uh, extremes, these crazes who are taking over both wings of the parties. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right that many of the big money and businesses were very ambivalent about Donald Trump. But the key thing is when you've got a process that is geared to small numbers, um, having, you know, an Edelman or a few other people with deep pockets can be more than enough uh, to fund a campaign. Campaign finance is, is in my view, essential. Um, and we've lost that thread. It's not, it's both the amount of money that's being raised and how it's being raised. Um, but I would say this, 
if we didn't have the political, we didn't have the primary system, we wouldn't have so much focus on money. Because now it's all about, you know, these rival teams of candidates with donors teaming up with party activists to try to get their candidate to win. If you look in countries in Europe that have parliamentary systems where the parties have a much more important role, money doesn't play as large a role. It's there, but it's it's a fragment of what we have in this country. So but Larry, again, if there's one way you can really alienate all Americans, both on the left and the right, is continually bringing up Europe and saying, well, we need to be more like Europe. Americans are never going to be like Europe. They resist that idea. So how are we going to make this an issue? Americans seem very good at forgetting. We've already, in many ways, forgotten Trump. There doesn't seem to be much public interest, public will to profoundly reform the system. Where is all this going to come from? I think we have to go back to basics. What is democracy? What does um, that mean? We meaning... Uh, you and me. People right are focusing, uh, if you look at the headlines today, it's Ukraine, it's healthcare, it's inflation, it's the price of gas. It's not profoundly reforming the system. Where is this initiative going to come from? America's had tremendous movements around revitalizing democracy. It's one of the, the kind of, I would say, um, uh, um, you know, really terrific uh, themes that we see in our history. It's been around civil rights, but it's also been fundamentally about what does democracy mean? We need that movement now. I think it is actually bubbling along. You see it with, you know, conversations about what's known as ranked choice voting, uh, so-called no-name uh, coalition. These are all, you know, they're not huge national movements, but they're there and they're gaining steam because there's so much frustration right now with the American political system. That's the opportunity. But in that conversation, we need to insert a, um, a really a forceful challenge to the idea of voting all the time and, and these primaries are, are democracy. Nowhere else um, that has a representative system thinks that way. This isn't um, you know, a good idea. We need to have a conversation. My view is that the primary system is profoundly undemocratic. It favors a small number. It favors uh, the insiders and it favors ideologues. We've got to take another look at it. I think that's how you get a conversation about this. Larry, you had an interesting piece um, in, uh, in the Star Tribune, uh, your local newspaper. Uh, entitled uh, in, from December last year, to succeed, reformers must foresee the path to failure. You write, uh, nothing changes, so says my students, and honestly, the complaint haunts me. My reflective response is to catalogue big changes that have occurred, and then you talk about back in the 70s. What can we learn from history about achieving this very profound change that you are suggesting is essential to maintain American democracy, and I think many people might agree with you. What, what do we need to convince people about the political process of big change as, as you lay out in this interesting piece? Well, I think certainly we need, we need to focus on how the political system has worked. Change happens all the time in America. Um, now, who it happens for is a different story because there's a whole invisible politics um, in which um, you know, corporations and special interests are doing very well, including those that support the primary system. But we need to pull back 
We need to see how has the, the political process worked uh, for everyday people. Look at Social Security. When it was passed in 1935, it was horrible. It excluded about half of African-Americans. Um, and the benefit was very small. Well, how did we go from that to a system that is now inclusive? It's, it is a system that um, has wiped away that racist beginning. It uh, provides a fairly generous benefit. Uh, that has lifted, you know, millions, tens of millions of people out of poverty, um, including people of color and women who had been in the past. Well, how did that happen? That happened because of a very hard-edged uh, focus on steps at a time and getting organized constituencies behind uh, these kind of movements. I think the revolution has to happen now argument, or it's not changed. It's really dissipating our resources. It's, and I could see that in Minneapolis. There was, you know, this big movement to reform the police department um, and create a new public safety department, which is needed. Um, I've, I've come to believe that, even though I hadn't earlier. But it was done in such a, um, a kind of maximalist way. It chased away natural allies and, you know, it lost. Um, and again, it lost in part because of the black community voting against it, which is remarkable. Well, there you have it. Uh, Larry Jacobs, Lawrence R. Jacobs, is warning us about the future of democracy in America. It's not just democracy under fire in Donald Trump's America. The very architecture, the structure of democracy is in crisis. And unless he says we address this now, Democracy may be finished in America. Very chilling um, warning from uh, Larry. Larry, uh, in addition to your new books, just out this month, as I said, Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History. What else should people be reading in late March 2022? You know, I'll confess I'm a geek. So I read a lot of articles and professional journals, um, which I'm not going to recommend. At all. Right. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, uh, let me give you two recommendations. Um, there's a very interesting book out uh, called The Other Divide, and it looks at the vast number of Americans who don't participate. They've simply opted out. And it obviously meshes with, with it's a kind of flip side of what I've been talking about, which yeah. is those who are engaged. This is looking at those who don't um, participate, and I think it's a really helpful book. It's by Yana Kripovich and uh, John Ryan. Um, more fun side, if those of you who kind of have been interested even critically of, uh, of Winston Churchill, there's a book out about uh, his life partner, uh, Lady Clementine. Um, it's by Marie Benedict. And it provides a very interesting take on this fascinating person and also on the limitations of Winston Churchill as a human, you know, quite apart from um, his sometimes um, you know, damaging uh, actions as well as heroic actions. Yeah, we had Jeffrey Wheatcroft on the show, uh, the author of uh, Churchill Shadow. So that's a, a very good suggestion. And finally, uh, Larry, or well, as he said, uh, the author of Democracy Under Fire, Lawrence R. Jacobs, uh, in late March 2022, Larry, who, who runs the world? Who's in charge? The theme that, I, that I've kind of uh, seen is one of fragmentation. I don't think there's one power center. I think there are many. I think we're seeing this right now on the global stage where the role of the U.S. and particularly Biden has been trying to stitching together a coalition. And that's 
that may be the most important accomplishment with regards to Russia and Ukraine war, but also in the Pacific with China. Here in America, power looks very fractured to me. I don't see like a corporate elite, a power elite running things. I see multiple power centers, um, which, you know, maybe it sounds great. There's kind of countervailing competition. But on the other hand, there are massive problems that we need to be dealing with uh, that are blocked because one of the other power centers is opposed to it. Um, so I, I think the, the journey uh, here in America um, and the uncertainty that we feel, and in my view, the dire threat, it lingers.